Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Partly as a result of 24-7 cable news and unending political coverage, politics today is another form of entertainment at worst and a spectator sport at best. We know the names of all the players. Nate Silver homogenizes sports and election statistics as if we all had political bookies. We're angry and we want purity tests for our candidates. But what we've lost sight of in all of this is what politics is actually for. It is, at its core, about the wielding of power. Success comes not from shouting or self-righteousness or the sanctity of one's views, but from the ability to muster the requisite number of votes. This is true whether it's about pre-existing conditions or about filling potholes or paving roads in your community. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Itan Hirsch. He's a professor of political science at Tufts University, where he uses big data to study important questions about American politics. He researches and teaches about civic participation, U.S. elections, and voting rights. He received his Ph.D. from Harvard and serves for six years on the faculty of Yale as assistant professor of political science and a resident fellow of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies. He's the author of the previous academic book, Hacking the Electorate, and it is my pleasure to welcome Itan Hirsch here to talk about his new works, Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. Itan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. This phrase that, that you've come up with, political hobbyism, really goes to the heart of, of really what you talk about in terms of the way we look at politics today, something we, we kind of do on the side. It's, uh, it's either our first or second hobby for so many people. Yeah, and that's right. It's for us. It's for, you know, learning interesting facts, our own intellectual thirst for knowledge, or it's about, you know, feelings, about kind of feeling connected to something important. Uh, And it just has a lot more in common with sports fandom or, you know, how foodies might take a hobby of being a foodie than it has with uh, influencing the government, which is what politics is all about. How, in your view, how did we get to this point? How did we get to the point where politics was not something to be involved in and to actively engage in in your local community to something that was a kind of entertainment, a kind of spectator sport? Yeah, so I think there's three big trends historically that have created this. One is just technology. All of our hobbies, not just our political hobby, have become shallow, uh, at-home uh, activities that we do kind of in five-minute stints throughout the day rather than in person. So, you know, the sports, you know, this is like kind of a continuation of the bowling alone themes that we learned about 20 years ago from Bob Putnam. You know, active in-person civic partition has declined, but not just civic, like, you know, clubs, sports, all that. And it's been replaced, as we've seen with the rise of social media, with this kind of shallow online hobbyism. Other things have changed, too. A big change has been that local party, political party organizations have been stripped of their powers. So a lot of progressive reforms have taken power away from local Democratic and Republican Party committees. They don't have any money anymore. They don't have much of a mission. For example, you know, before the 1970s, they had a very important role to play in the presidential primary system, and now they don't. That's been replaced by primaries. Um, so we've kind of taken power away from local institutions that could be the source of engagement. But the main thing, I think, the, the biggest driver of this is that particularly for the class of well-educated white Americans, 
the status quo has been increasingly good and they've felt less need to engage in real community activity, whether that's uh, attending churches or participating in politics. You know, they might lament the status quo. They might say they hate polarization or they don't like Trump or they don't like Obama, but they're not getting off their couches to do anything about it. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that they're quite comfortable there on the couch. How much of it has to do with the media and coverage that, and, and that the coverage is so broadly focused on national politics and, and, and national approach to everything. And simultaneously, we've seen local coverage, local media virtually disappear. That's right. I mean, you know, uh, it's not exactly the media's fault. It's our fault for incentivizing the media about what we care about. I mean, what we have shown over time as there's been this explosion of of different types of media, of websites, of podcasts, of of cable news, we've shown, we the American public has shown that what we thirst for is national focused drama and outrage. And we have very little appetite for the details of policymaking or political engagement at the state or local level. So, you know, it's not like the news came first and it's made us all into you know, to national drama-obsessed people. We we were there all along, and we've shown through our media choices what we care about. And in fact, what we're doing with this hobbyism, as you call it, is really not politics. It's not really what politics is about. That's right. When I think about politics, like a definition of political participation, I would say it's uh, people working together with concrete goals and strategies to influence the government. They might do that by, you know, getting their neighbors to vote a certain way or by getting politicians to act a certain way in legislators or things like that. But that kind of influence, moving people to get your values imposed in government just does not correspond with how the vast majority of politically engaged, so-called politically engaged Americans participate today. And as you say, people vote the most usually when it matters the least. Yeah, I mean, you look at California, um, like any other state, but California won't be a, a competitive election in the 2020 election, but that's where you'll have the highest turnout. Meanwhile, for state and local things that can really impact issues people care about, um, whether it's issues related to racial equality, the environment, um, economic development, then people stay at home. You know, And so one of the weird things about political hobbyism is that when you're engaged in this national-focused news consumption, you're kind of learning the wrong information that could help you become a better informed voter. You're, you're not learning anything that's going to actually influence how you would vote or how you could convey to others who to vote for. It's really just focused on, you know, the Mueller report, Sharpie Gate, uh, the impeachment trial, things that you, a voter, have no role to play in. Mm-hmm. In many ways, it is a kind of laziness, I suppose, because it's real easy to turn on cable news or go on social media. Not so easy to go out and attend a local meeting, a local city council meeting or an organizing meeting about something. Yeah, I think as it's gotten so easy to feel connected, even in a shallow way, to what's going on from home, it feels comparatively harder to engage in your community. And something else is happening, which is that the politics we see online and on cable news is awful. It's it's uh, vicious. It's mean. And um, if you think that that's what politics is going to be locally through actual engagement, then you would say, well, why would I want to do that? That seems terrible. But in truth, 
and I hope we'll get to talk about this, you know, real active engagement is nothing like the outrage online. It values a different set of skills like being empathetic, being a good listener, taking a slow and steady approach to get people on board with you. And so when we pay attention to the national stuff, you know, we're learning the wrong skills. The other thing that happens with local engagement is that the only people that engage are those that have some kind of problem, some issue that directly impacts them. Anything beyond that is just not something of interest. That tends to be right. You know, you'll, you know, you'll show up, um, you know, it's a classic NIMBY story. You know, you'll show up if there's a, a development right next to you and you don't want it. But, you know, no one is showing up to a zoning board meeting, for example, to advocate for better density. I mean, not nobody. Some people are. But, but few people are. You tend to only get engaged at a local level when you feel the stakes are high. And, of course, the exceptions to that, groups that are working really hard right now to move politics for themselves I mean, in a direction that they want, are people who feel connected to some big issues um, and they want to have a concrete role in solving those issues. It seems that the elephant in the room here when we talk about all of this is the power and impact of money in the political process, be it nationally or locally, that money has become such a large influencer that it does make the individual seem more powerless on every level. Yeah, I would. I think I would. I would reject that a little bit. I mean, for one thing, you have money being spent in different ways by different parties. You know, on the left, you have people like Mike Bloomberg and Tom Steyer throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at vanity projects. Meanwhile, on the right, you've had the Koch brothers for quite a long time invest in very slow and steady party building, grassroots, you know, having a long view. The idea that you could work on a county judge race and invest in a county judge race for a 25-year-old kid fresh out of law school with the idea that maybe in 30 years that person can be on the Supreme Court. Whether it's money or just uh, people on our couch, a lot of people would look at a county judge race and say, you know, that's beneath me, that's parochial, I don't care about that. So it's not just about money, it's about vision and uh, a, a, a path to power, a path to change. Uh, if you're focused on instant gratification, whether you're Tom Steyer or whether you're someone without any money on the couch, it's going to result in a lack of power for the things you care about. It does seem, to put this in some partisan perspective, it does seem that Republicans have understood this in a more powerful way with things like ALEC and their effectiveness in, in state races, for example. That's right. And I think Republicans are, you know, as there's been this very increased, increasingly strong relationship between church attendance and Republican affiliation, you see that it's Republicans, much more than Democrats, who are in the practice of regular community participation. You see groups like gun clubs that have a very clear service mission of, you know, uh, safety classes and things like that tied to a political agenda, but at a grassroots level. The church, churches that are involved in the right to life movement, you see, again, grassroots local organizing with a long-term path to power. And so I think a lot of our best examples of what I think are the successful models of long-term change are on the right. And on the left, you have this kind of cosmopolitan view that, you know, I care about the big important stuff and anything in my own community is kind of boring and unimportant. What are you seeing in terms of the nexus between these national attitudes and local politics, the way in which the anger, the partisanship, the division that we see nationally playing out in this, this entertainment sports complex 
the way in which that's trickling down to to poison really local politics. Yeah, you know, I have been personally at some local community meetings where I've seen um, someone maybe who's not as practiced at being in those meetings take this kind of performative outrage approach. And, you know, it doesn't go over well. You know, you, you can really spoil a meeting by by deciding it's a performance art for you to uh, vent your anger. Um, really, when you're engaged in any kind of local politics, you know, you have to get people on board with you. And the issues are not so black and white. You know, whether the, if the issue is about, you know, say the environment, the people that you're going to have to convince to move one way or the other are people who are in your neighborhood who have different priorities, and you can't yell at them if you want them to do what you want. And so I think if you try to approach um, a real political uh, activity with that kind of outrage, you're not going to get very far. But it certainly can make, in the short term, these kinds of meetings uh, awkward. How much of that comes from the fact that compromise has become a dirty word in the larger national political discourse. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a big part of it. I mean, that's people don't, you know, when you're when when your opponent is some kind of distant villain who you don't have to interact with, it's very easy to take a non-compromise approach. Um, and if you are looking at politics like a show, you know, you don't want your senators to compromise. You want them to dig in their heels and fight, fight, fight. But if you actually want to make progress on something, and we know this, anyone who's been in a meeting at work, at a school, any, any kind of meeting knows that you have to be compromising and thoughtful and empathetic about where other people are coming from. So, you know, the, the outrage online is not just a distraction. It's not just like a, a waste of time for people who um, uh, have real goals in politics. It's really like the opposite of what it takes to build political power. But, you know, it's not just that people are lazy. A lot of people don't, don't really have a sense of what it's like to be engaged in communities or they feel scared about it. Um, I think a lot of young people have never seen anything like um, real community engagement. And so, you know, that's why in this book I wrote, I I spent a lot of it highlighting stories of local organizers who really show us um, that, you know, the way, the thing they are doing, political power building, is first of all, beautiful and interesting and engaging and also like not so different from, I think, what the values of the people who are right now in the hobbyist mode um, feel. I mean, I guess part of the question is, and and maybe this sort of feeds into all the wrong impulses, but how do you make local politics, local community organizing, local engagement, how do you make that sexier in the kind of entertainment celebrity culture we live in? I mean, you know, look at some of the stories in the book. I mean, just to highlight one, one of my favorites, this guy, this 98-year-old man who is called the Ukrainian boss. He's been under investigation by the U.S. attorneys. And it turns out his story is amazing. He, in retirement, was just kind of a do-gooder in his community. He helped drive people in his community of mostly Russian refugees from the former USSR. He drove them to doctor's appointments and taught them English and was just a nice person in his community. And then he decided to leverage that into political organizing. So he, and a bunch of his lieutenants, he called them, They would go around and say, here's who the community should vote for. They would pass out these slates. They would get out the vote. 
And this person increased his own power from one vote that he was entitled to, of course, to a thousand votes. A thousand people voted his way. And, you know, I have to say, this, this person's story is in the book, but he died a, a few weeks ago, and I went to his funeral, 99 years old, and they're sitting in this chapel for this funeral where, you know, the governor of Massachusetts, the mayor of Boston, state legislators, city councilors, all paying tribute to this person who, not even till he was in retirement did he start doing this, and what did he do? He got a few hundred of his neighbors to act together as a political force. That's something that is fascinating, it's, it's inspiring, and it's within the grasp of so many people who are now spending an hour or two a day uh, worrying and whining. How much of it has to do with the fact that it's become kind of unpleasant, or people perceive it as unpleasant, I suppose, to run for local political office? Yeah, I mean, I think there is, you know, what can I say? You know, participation in local communities, serving on committees, is it hard? I know I do it all the time. I'm out one or two nights a week, so is my wife, engaging in the community, going to meetings, and it's both inspiring and, and gratifying, but yeah, it's hard. Um, but that's life. You know, if you care about something, if you care about supporting your community, if you feel like a steward of your community, like you have some responsibility for what happens, then what choice do you have? Is one of the factors that, that enters into this, and it's certainly something you see here in, in the Bay Area in California, and I suppose other places, because of the, the increasing cost of housing, people, people moving further and further away from where they work, that they are more disconnected from their community because it really becomes just a place where they sleep. Yeah, I think you see that, and you see that in different ways in different demographics. You know, when I look at my students now, my college students, I know that in the next 10 years, they're going to move about six times. They're probably not going to live near where they grew up. They're not going to get married until they're close to 30. And they're not going to have kids until, you know, around then. And so they're not going to feel settled for a decade. Now, does that mean that they shouldn't be involved in any community affairs until then? No, because, you know, you, if you participate where you can, where you live, you build skills and relationships that will continue to carry with you after you leave that place, um, but that are also useful in the moment. You know, so if you don't feel connected to where you live, but you feel connected to where you work, you can engage there. But, you know, where you live, there are a lot of opportunities to engage on issues that you care about and be part of um, something that multiplies the power of your own voter voice. Do you find that there's a difference between urban and rural and suburban places in terms of community engagement? Well, there's definitely more transience and, um, you know, like less church attendance and things like that in more urban areas. And so you definitely see, you know, uh, in places that are more rural, people tend to know their neighbors, um, be longer term residents. So you definitely see, uh, you know, a, a bit of variation there. Yeah. And, and talk about young people and what you're seeing, your students and, and what you hear from young people about this phenomenon that we've been talking about. Yeah. So, you know, the young people that I see, my students, for example, the idea of political hobbyism and the kind of the shallowness of it does resonate with them. But I think to a large extent, because they feel disconnected, because you know, I see mostly you know, young liberal students, they're disconnected from any religious institutions. They're again, going to be transient for a number of years. And so they don't really feel like 
you know, in spite of any civics training we might have given them, you know, any kind of government courses they took in high school or college, they um, don't have the language and skill set to necessarily engage this way. And scary, and it also can feel um, parochial, like, you know, why would I engage locally? It's not as important at what's going on in Washington. So I think this resonates with them because, you know, the stories in the book range in age all the way from that oldest man, the Ukrainian boss who's 90, who was 98, to a couple of college students who really figured this out too. And even in their short-term life as college students in one particular place, they, they figured out how to get engaged too. So I think my students, it resonates with them. They don't see the, they don't see the alternative to hobbyism, and that's you know, what I'm trying to show them here. And if they don't come to understand it the way generations years ago did, they don't quite get that local involvement. What do you see then for the future of politics as we know it? Well, I think we're going down a really bad path right now. And, you know, when I say I titled the book Politics is for Power, and that power idea makes some people uncomfortable. And I want them to be uncomfortable because if they're not willing to work for democracy, of course, other people work hard for it instead. And I give examples in the book. Um, for example, the exa- one example I give is about the Ku Klux Klan, who in 2018 went around North Carolina saying um, to opioid addicts, hey, you know, if you have an opioid addiction, it's not your fault. We here at the KKK, come talk to us. If that makes you uncomfortable because, you know, the KKK is going to win support, not by their noxious ideology, but, but by being uh, empathetic to people with addiction. If that makes you uncomfortable, and nevertheless, you don't want to engage in a form of politics that empathizes with your neighbors and builds power for what you care about, then, hey, just know who's going to build it instead. And so I think about not just young people, but I think about recent retirees, this huge population of boomers that's approaching uh, or retirement or is nearly retired. People have time on their hands, young people too. Like if they don't like the direction that politics is taken, then it's on them. You know, it's on all of us. Etan Hirsch, the book is Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action and Make Real Change. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.